Have you ever had a secret that was kind of heavy, weighty, that you had that you thought you should tell, but you couldn't tell? It's very precarious and sacred space. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark for some 16 months now, and throughout Mark, we have come across this curiosity, one that I will admit I've kind of brushed over. But I wonder if you've noticed it. It's that Jesus keeps telling everyone to keep him a secret. It's like in chapter 3 when the demons come and they, the unclean spirits say, you are the son of God. And then verse 12 says that Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known. Or in chapter 5 when, when Jesus heals Jairus' daughter, raises her from the dead, and then it says he strictly charged them that no one should know this. I think, why would he do that? I mean, maybe with the demons, you think, well, they're demons. So you don't want them going around evangelizing. They're not worthy of that. But I mean, since when has Jesus really cared how the word got out? And the reality is, is that Jairus' daughter, you'd think that, that he would want everyone to know about this, and yet he told them not to tell anyone. And And even the disciples in chapter 8, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, right on, Peter, you got it. Then he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now that's odd. Doesn't Jesus want his disciples to evangelize? Doesn't he want the word about him getting out? What's going on here? It's curious. Well, I think we get the answer in this trial scene in Mark 14. Now, I got to be honest uh, with you. Um, I love a good trial scene. So a a good movie with a good trial scene, kind of a whodunit especially, that's like my favorite. We love good trial scenes like A Time to Kill with Matthew McConaughey. I mean, who doesn't love that? Or... Or to kill a mockingbird, for those who are maybe a little more highbrow. Or my personal favorite, taking it all the way down, my cousin Vinny. (laughs) The best trial scene ever, because it's all about how the grits are made, right? At the end, you know what I'm talking about, those of you who can sink even down to my level. My cousin, we love a good trial scene. I mean, we love a good trial scene whether it's in the movies or whether it's in real life. I mean, think of how our country was enamored with and locked on their TVs with O.J. Simpson or Michael Jackson or Amanda Knox. And, And what we want is we want the truth to be revealed. What we're looking for in a good trial scene, in a trial in the courtroom, is for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Well, here in Mark chapter 14, we get the most dramatic trial scene of all of history. And it's here in Matthew 14 that that we find that what is on trial is the very identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? The question that's been pressing itself upon us as we've been going through this gospel over and over and over and over again, who is this man? 
And here in Mark 14, in the drama of the courtroom, we get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about who Jesus is. Let's pray to God as we're confronted with this truth. Lord, your word is truth. And the truth sets us free. And so we ask that we would be liberated by the truth about your son and we would be free indeed. It's in his name that I do pray. Amen. Well, here's how we're going to look at this this morning. We're going to look at the revelation. We're going to look at the rejection. And we're going to look at the redemption. The revelation, the rejection, and the redemption. That's for those of you note takers. For the rest of you, just listen up. So, the revelation. In verse 61, the high priest asked Jesus, point blank, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Christ? And Jesus answers very clearly, very directly, verse 62, yes, I am. Now, what's odd about this is why was Jesus silent earlier? Because this is the exact thing, the exact thing that Peter confesses. You are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus tells him, don't tell anyone. Why here does he reveal himself, and why before was he silent? Well, you have to understand something about the high priest's understanding of of what he's asking. The high, high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ? Now, Christ is the Greek Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew Messiah, Mashiach. And everyone is very enamored at this point in the sermon. But the point is that it meant anointed one, and it was about this figure who was going to come and be a king, a human king who would redeem and rescue Israel, throw off the yoke of the Romans, and lead them into a place of peace and justice. And that was the high priest's understanding. So when he asked, are you the Christ, that is what he's asking. And that's Peter's understanding. And when he says, are you the son of the blessed one or the son of God, You need to know that he is not assuming that Jesus is divine. Son of God, in a Jewish mindset, did not entail someone's divinity. It meant that someone had a special relationship with God. That's why David, the king, is called son of God. That's why Solomon is called son of God. And all the kings in the line of David are considered sons of God. Christians are called sons of God. To be a son of God is to have a special relationship with God. And so he is not asking, are you divine? He's asking, are you this special anointed human king who is going to throw off the yoke of the oppressors? That was Peter's understanding. That was the high priest's understanding. And Jesus says, that is who I am. Yes, I am. But then he goes on. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You will see the Son of Man. You know, Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. I was once at a dinner party in college and, and uh, someone found out, I think, that I was studying theology and they said, you know what Jesus called himself most often? Son of Man. His favorite way to refer to himself. He's just a... He wanted to be known as a normal dude, just a normal guy, son of man. But I wonder, when Jesus says that he's the son of man here, is he saying that he's just a normal guy? You know, normal guys aren't usually seated at the right hand of power. 
And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. To be seated at the right hand of power is to share in the very authority of God because you are actually sharing His throne. Normal guys don't usually just share in the throne of God and the authority of God. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You know, normal guys usually don't ride on the clouds. And you say, well, I'm a pilot. Yeah, but this isn't... The air clouds, this isn't the clouds of the atmosphere, those are full of water. This is the clouds of heaven, the glory clouds, the very Shekinah glory that fell on the tabernacle, that fell on the temple, that covered the earth in the beginning. This is the glory that he's talking about, and he's saying that, that he will share in the glory of God. And normal guys usually don't come riding on the glory clouds. Now, Jesus is claiming something much bigger. Jesus is, is saying, I am one who shares in the authority of God. I am one who shares in the very glory of God. So I'm not the Christ that you're asking about, and I'm not the Christ you're confessing. I am much bigger. Why the silence earlier? Because who gets to say who Jesus is? Jesus does. Which is actually a very relevant thing for our time. This is actually a huge question today. Who gets to say who God is? Uh, in, a, in a multicultural society, one of the things that's pressing upon us, one question that we have to deal with and wrestle with is... Who gets to say that their version or their form or their expression of religious truth is the valid one? In other words, who gets to say who God is? Who gets to speak for God? Who gets to say who He is and what He's like? You know the answer to that question? God does. Not the high priest. Not the demons. Not even me and not even you. God gets to say who God is. And God gets to say what God is like. And there before the high priest, God, in the person of Jesus Christ, says, this is who I am. It's not a simple affirmation, I am the Christ, but a recalibration. Everything that you understand about the Christ now has to be changed in light of me. You know, this is a, an extremely important question because, I mean, an extremely important issue because Jesus is saying, I am always more than you think I am. Did you know that? Jesus is never less than you think he is. He is always more. Jesus is, his authority is more extensive than you think it is. Jesus' power is more active than you believe it is. Jesus' wrath is more real and more pure than you expect it to be. And Jesus' grace and his love is much deeper than we could ever dare imagine. I don't care how long you've been a Christian, he is always more and he is always bigger and he is always better. And so we can't put him in a box. I remember one day when I had my concept of God radically challenged. I grew up in a Christian school, a private Christian school, and... I thought I had a pretty good understanding of who God is and what he did. 
And uh, then through the scriptures and someone uh, teaching them and opening them up, uh, I started having all my frameworks for what I felt and believed about God to be challenged. Uh, And I said things like, my God could never. God could never. My God could never elect people to heaven. My God could never as a just consequence for sin, take away our ability to seek him. My God could never ordain whatsoever comes to pass. My God could never do any of these things. See, I had put God in a box and said, he must fit this box. And I thought I had comprehended him. And I walked out of a pastor's office that day realizing that God was much bigger than I ever imagined and that I would never be able to get my mind fully around him. This is the incomprehensible God. We don't comprehend him. He comprehends us. We don't apprehend him. He apprehends us. And we, we don't define him. He defines us. His word defines us. See, here's the thing about Jesus When you go to heaven, you will continually grow in your knowledge of him. And guess what? For eternity, and guess what? Your knowledge will never exhaust who he is. So, don't think that you have a line on Jesus. Don't think that you can put him in a box. Uh, this is who Jesus is, and this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And the question is, are you going to accept it, or are you going to reject it? Because it does demand a response. It demands a response. You either have to accept it or reject it. You have to do something with it. You know, I was confronted with the truth early in my life, uh, around the time I got married, uh, and I had to do something about it. And the truth that I was confronted with was simply this. I grew up in a town where if you lived at the end of a street that had a round thing on it, it was called a cove. And I kept telling everyone I grew up on, and my address was Morning Grove Cove. And then people started calling it a cul-de-sac. And I was like, what are you, French? No, I'm American. I live on a cove. And people said, no, it's a cul-de-sac. And at that point... I said, no, and I Google searched it, and I asked a bunch of other people, and I started taking surveys and polls. I started talking to people from different parts of the country, and guess what I found out? It's a (laughs) cul-de-sac. And at that point, I had to do something. I could either accept that and start calling that thing a cul-de-sac so everybody could understand me, and I do, begrudgingly, but I have accepted it. I've accepted the truth, or I could reject it and be like, nope. Not, not a cul-de-sac to me, not in my world. But I have to do something when I'm confronted with the truth. Well, how much more when you're confronted with the truth about who Jesus is? You have to either accept it or reject it, but there is a fork in the road and you have to do something about it. Which actually brings us to the rejection. Because, you know, some truth is just too hard to handle. Like when Aaron Trask finds out that his mom runs a brothel and he's been told his whole life that she is 
she is dead. And he says, I can't handle it. And John Steinbeck's east of Eden. I can't, no, that's not true. But then, of course, later on, he's confronted with the truth again. And he can't handle it. And he runs away. You know, some truth is just too hard to handle. We all learned that from Jack Nicholas. You can't handle the truth. And a few good men. Uh, here's a truth that they can't handle. And so what do they do? They reject it. And the rejection starts early. It starts back in verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Now just notice this. They were seeking testimony against Jesus, which means what? They were biased from the start. See, they weren't seeking, they weren't openly seeking the truth. They knew what the truth must be, and now they were looking for evidence to confirm that. And the reality is, is that, that that's the position we're all in. We like to think of ourselves as like objectively seeking the truth, but we are all biased. We are all biased. And here they are biased as well. We're not objective seekers in the truth. I mean, even Nietzsche got that. Nietzsche, in his book, Beyond Good and Evil, said, In our natural situation, our heart is too insecure to ever handle the truth. There is a fear and a hatred of the truth. And then he says this, I have done that, says my memory. I could not have done that, says my pride. Eventually, my memory gives in. See, what do we do when we are confronted with truth that we can't handle? Well, the first thing I think we do is we try to distort it. You know, they need Jesus, the Jews at that time, they need Jesus to be both a blasphemer and an insurrectionist. Because if he's just a blasphemer, well, the Romans won't kill him for that. Right? But if he's just an insurrectionist, if he's Messiah, well, that wasn't, the Jews wouldn't kill him for that. So they need him to be both. And so they're trying to figure out how he can be both. And so false witnesses come forward and they distort the truth. Look at verse 56 through 59. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony, they did not agree. See, they were trying to, to take something that was reminiscent of what Jesus said, and make it fit because it wanted, they wanted it to fit their narrative of who he was. Jesus never said, I will destroy the temple. Jesus said, the temple will be destroyed. And he said, if you destroy the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. But he never said, I will destroy the temple. But you see, they have to make him out to be a blasphemer and an insurrectionist. And so, they're going to make sure that whatever the facts are, they fit their narrative of him. They distort the truth, and so do we. We read things how we want to read them. Churchill said, the truth is incontrovertible. Malice may attack it. Ignorance may deride it. But in the end, there it is. So what happens when we try to distort the truth, but it just doesn't map on to fact? And their testimony did not agree. Verse 59. Well, then we have to move to more extreme measures. You have, to just, you have to suppress the truth. 
which is what happens when Jesus confronts them with the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I am. The high priest, verse 63, says, tore his garments. And verse 64 says that they condemned him as deserving of death. Let's suppress it. We can't distort it. We can't ignore it. We have to suppress it. And I think there's actually integrity here. I mean, their reaction is extreme. I mean, it says that not just the guards, but the council were like spitting on him and beating him. I mean, Jesus' statement causes this explosion. But it actually makes sense because if Jesus is who he claims he says he is, in that claim, you can't respond in a mild way. You can't respond by saying, oh, I guess this means I'll attend church semi-regularly or give some money away at the end of the year. That's not what Jesus is demanding. Jesus is saying, your time, your money, your future, your affections, they're all mine. I am God. You were made for me. I am the judge of all the earth, and I have absolute authority. I mean, think about it like this. If someone came up to you and they said, um, so you need to run your schedule by me, and they said, and, and by the way, you need to always open your wallet to me, how are you going to respond? Like, and they were insistent on it. Well, if it is your beloved who you're about to propose to, you're going to say, here is my wallet, and yes, honey, what are you doing on Saturday? But if it's not, you're going to say, who do you think you are, and probably get a restraining order. Right? But you're not going to say, hmm, that's interesting. I mean, if they're really insistent, you're not going to say, that's interesting. Hmm. You know, some of you have been investigating Christianity for a while, and you're on the fence. And the way that you respond to Jesus, it seems respectful. Hmm, that's interesting. But it actually doesn't give him the credit that he deserves and what he's actually saying. Jesus is saying, I am Lord or nothing. So kill me or crown me. Those are the options. There's a lot of integrity, I think, in their response, but there's also a lot of irony. Notice that in verse 65, they say to him, prophesy. But in doing so, they're actually confirming that he is the true prophet who tells the truth. Because earlier in Mark 10, verse 33, it says, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. See, they tie him up, they blindfold him, and they say, prophesy. And the irony is, is... They're actually confirming that he is the truth and the true prophet. But that's not the only irony. The other irony is that in bringing him to death, they think that they are suppressing his power when actually what's happening is that they're bringing him to the right hand of God and that is the way that he shows his power through his death. Jesus is saying, uh, or through, this, through this text, I mean, what's going on here is that, that Jesus 
the way that he gets to the right hand of God, the way that he is vindicated is actually through his death. And the way that he shows his power is actually through exercising it in weakness by saving the world at the cross. You know, uh, one of the privileges of my job is I, get to, I got to talk with people about their objections to Christianity. And every once in a while, after dealing with these objections, someone would just say, very frankly, very honestly, you know, Kyle, at the end of the day, I just don't want to give up control. And uh, I had that said to me twice in the last couple months. And there's something that is incredibly refreshing about that, about the honesty to say, yeah, I have a lot of questions and intellectual objections, but at the end of the day, I just don't want to give up control. But I also want to say, while that is absolutely refreshing, it is also, with all due respect, absolutely foolish and futile. Do you really think that you have control over your life if Jesus is who he said he is? See, what you want to give up is the semblance of control or the illusion of control, but you're not in control. Who of us is in control? How many of you can control whether or not you get cancer? How many of you can control whether or not your, uh, a relationship with a loved one, uh, they reciprocate? How many of you can control the markets? We are not in control. Jesus commands our destiny. And when we sit there and we reserve control, or we try to, try to act like we, we, we retain control over this area of our life or this thing or our lives as a whole, it's futile and foolish. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The third irony in this is that the judge of all the earth is the one who is being judged. I mean, Jesus talks about the Son of Man, and in that text in Daniel 7 that refers to the Son of Man, it's a judgment scene. And Jesus is the judge of all the earth, and yet here in this passage, he is being judged. It's God in the dock. C.S. Lewis said, ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, that is modern man, and God is in the dock. He is quite, kindly, uh, uh, quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, he is ready to listen to him. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Here, God is in the dock. Jesus is in the dock. They are judging the judge of all the earth. And we think, how could they do that? But I would say that we do it all the time. And I would respectfully disagree with C.S. Lewis. I don't think that it's modern man. I think that it's all of humanity. That it goes back to the very beginning. Because listen, any time we ask the question, are his commandments worth fulfilling? We're actually putting him in the dock. We're saying, I'm going to render a judgment on whether or not you are worthy to follow or not. 
Any time we withhold time or money or allegiance based on our circumstances, whether God would change them in the future or would continue them in the present, we are putting God in the dock. We're saying, God, I will follow you if and only this, but, but I'm going to be the one who reserves the right to judge whether you are worthy to be followed. And it has to be according to my standards of what God should be and God should do. Anytime we question God's sovereign distribution of gifts, we are putting God in the dock. See, if you want to know where you judge God, just look at your jealousies. Why did you give them that gift? Should you really be letting that person have that status or that position or that amount of wealth? Should you really be letting them have that kind of suffering? Anytime we do that, anytime we question the path, we're saying, I know better than you. And God is in the dock. We put God in the dock all the time. We even put God in the dock in the way that we talk about our relationship with Jesus in evangelical circles. Uh, Just think of it. I mean, the way that we often talk about our relationship with Jesus is we talk about becoming a Christian is, is I invite Jesus into my heart. Now, let me say something. I think there's something extremely precious and extremely beautiful about that. And, and that is the notion that when we come into a relationship with God in Christ, we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And it is deep and intimate and real. And he sends the Holy Spirit into our lives. And yes, we have an intimate relationship with him. Absolutely. But by talking about inviting, I think we flip the roles. It's not us who invite God into our life. It's God who invites us into his triune life. It's not us who make room for God in our story and the story of our lives, but it's God who makes room for us in the story of his life and of the world. Uh, We don't get to sit in judgment seat and decide whether or not, I think I'll let you in or I think I won't. No, when the Bible talks about it, the Bible talks about faith, and faith is, becoming a Christian is this recognition of a disposition that I am hopeless and helpless without God and that God has actually died and rose again for the salvation of the world and therefore I cling to and rest in and rely upon him. We flip the roles so often and we put God in the dock and that's actually what brings our redemption which may be the greatest irony of all. Notice that we put God in the dock, we put Jesus in the dock here, and he accepts it. After World War II, 1960 in Berlin, there was a Lutheran pastor. His name was Guntner Rotenborn. And he noticed that people in the 60s in Berlin were still wrestling with the guilt of the Third Reich and the Holocaust and the weight of the atrocities that humanity had committed against one another. And in wrestling with that guilt, he decided to write a play, a play to help people understand and work through these atrocities. 
The play is called The Sign of Jonah. And in The Sign of Jonah, uh, what happens is, is you see people coming who are basically, uh, basically they are on the dock. And first it's the common people. And they say, you're guilty. And they say, no, it's not us. It's not our fault. It was the soldiers. And then the police. And the police say, no, it's not our fault. It was the leading officers. And the leading officers, no, it's not our fault. It was Hitler. And, not, and it goes on and on and on until finally they say, it's, it's God. God must be at fault here. Because he's the one who allowed this. Because he's the one who created this kind of world. Because, because that's how we are. And there's this sense that somebody must be held responsible and who's going to be judged and they start going around and passing the buck and passing the buck because in some ways they're all responsible but, but can, no one has the right to judge another and finally they say, we'll judge God. And then God steps into, into the dock. And they accuse him and they consign him to death. They say, let him become a human being. Let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him become homeless and hungry and thirsty. Let him die. And when he dies, let him be disgraced and ridiculed. Ed Clowney is a professor, was a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and he reflected on this illustration, and when he got to the end, and he got to this point, he says, they said, let him be all these things, and he was. See, they're demanding that God pay for their sins, and he does. I was talking to somebody recently who was watching a, a miniseries. Uh, I haven't seen it. Uh, but in the miniseries, uh, The Wired, and in the miniseries, which I'm not recommending because I haven't seen it, but in the miniseries, uh, the, the person was talking about how, like, he was waiting for someone to be a kind of clean figure. That everybody is kind of guilty, and everybody's dirty, and everybody's on the take. The politicians, the police, the folks, like, everybody, everybody is tainted. That's the human predicament. And when everybody is tainted, who's responsible? And who pays? God pays. God came. See, God comes the righteous and dies for the unrighteous. God comes even though he had no sin to bear and bears our sin. God comes even though he is absolutely innocent and he bears our guilt so that we might go free. That's the gospel. O oh, love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me, the judge of all should suffer death to set his prisoner free. You see here, in the greatest irony of all, God not only submits himself to our sinful judgments, but uses it for our redemption. That's amazing. Who could think of that story? Who could make up that story? I think it's the truth. Accept it. Believe it. And follow him with your life.
Amen.